0: We went on a mission trip to England uh, in, I think, 2018. You know, you heard Alan mention our trip to, uh, to uh, Maine this next week. Alan is going to be part of that. I got to go on the trip to England, Carrie and I both. Uh, we fell in love with the believers up there in the northern, northern end of, of England and, and want to go back someday. At the time, we didn't know if we'd ever get to go back, and, and we may not. And, and so at the end of the trip... We spent the last two days in London, and Carrie and I said, "Let's let's pay a little extra and spend one more day because we'd never been there before." And London's amazing. I have to tell you, if you ever get to go there, there's lots to see. But one thing I I, I have to highly recommend to you is the Churchill War Room. So what this is, it's an underground bunker in London, just down from from uh, the Prime Minister's uh, house, where the head of the government of of England, of the United Kingdom, and his cabinet met all through the 1940s. And you say, well, why did the English government meet underground? Because the city was being bombed every day for eight months. And when I say every day, there was literally a 57-day stretch where every night the Germans bombed the city of London. For eight months, off and on, bombings happened. 43,000 Londoners died. Now, this is, this is known in English history and world history as the Blitz. Many of you know this, you've you've read this in the history books, you've seen World War II movies, you know this, but I want you to think for a moment about what it would be like because none of us as Americans has ever experienced anything like this. If every night when you laid your head on the bed, on the pillow, you knew that at some point that night an air raid siren was going to go off, you would hear explosions in your city, you would hear screams, you would see flames, and if you survived... The next day, you would find out who had died, and often it would be someone you knew, at least casually. It was some guy you rode on the bus with to work. It was your boss's secretary. It was the the lady who cuts your wife's hair, and sometimes it would be a friend, and sometimes it would be a family member, and you had this thought, what if it's me someday? What if it's my family that dies? 43,000 of your neighbors are dying over the course of eight months. And to make matters worse, you know that right now, for all you can tell, your side is losing. Because at that point in the war, it was just England standing up to the Nazis. That's it. Germany controlled all of Europe. And just this little island up in the northern Pacific, just the British. You look on a map how small England is. The United States hadn't gotten in the war. The United States didn't want to get in the war. So for all you could tell, it was just you against this massive war machine and they were just going to grind you slowly to death or they would invade and kill you overnight. Now that's discouraging. And yet the interesting thing is when you look at history, the British never seemed to protest. They never marched in the street saying, Mr. Churchill, sign a, sign a peace treaty so we can get out of this war before we all die. In fact, they all seemed united in saying, let's, let's keep a stiff upper lip, let's, let's continue to resist, we're on the side of righteousness. We, we've all seen those signs today that say keep calm and carry on, right? That's from that period of time. It says, hey, let's just stick, let's stay the course. Now, how did they do it? One of the things that that kept them, uh, kept them, along, kept them uh, from giving up is they had a leader in Winston Churchill who every day would walk the streets of London. He would often go to the places where the bombs had dropped, would, would talk to families, would shake hands, and you could see him everywhere all over London in his little bowler hat and his cigar and flashing his V for victory sign. Now, now listen, Winston Churchill, I've read a lot of books about him because I found him interesting, was a deeply flawed human okay? Don't hear me to say that he was some kind of Messiah on earth, but he was the right man for that time. They needed a leader who had physical courage. That's something we don't see in our leaders very much these days on either side. And that inspired his people. And and in case you're wondering why this matters, the history lecture is just about to be over, so don't worry if you're bored. But if England would have given up, we'd be living in a much darker world today. We owe them a lot. Now, I say all that because in, in a way, we Christians in America today feel like we're on the losing side. And I know, I know we don't have a lot in common with, with Englishmen uh, 70, 80 years ago. We're not in any physical danger. We live in the freest, most prosperous nation on earth and we have it good. And yet... When we look at what's happening in the culture around us, we see cultural changes, we see churches struggling, we see pastors and and famous church leaders who suddenly get exposed uh, for being not all that they claim to be. And and it's easy for us to get discouraged and think, you know, we're losing. Uh, Maybe in a generation or two, there won't be any American Christianity. And, And what we need to understand is there is encouragement here. We have a leader walking among us who is greater than Churchill, That is Jesus Christ risen from the dead and he walks alongside of us and he shows us the way and he will not give up. He, as we sang earlier, he cannot be stopped. So I want you to hear these words of encouragement today from Revelation 3, 7 through 13. Out of all the seven letters in Revelation, this is the one that is the most encouraging. In fact, there's not one word of rebuke. It's the only one of the seven. And it may be the word, exactly the word you need to hear today. Revelation 3, 7 says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the holy one, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never will he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So this letter is written to the church in the city of Philadelphia. That's not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. As, as Alan reminded me, he's a Dallas Cowboys fan and he would hate to have to pray for or, or emulate or, or, or sympathize with the people of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, right? Those people booed Santa Claus at halftime of a football game. This is Philadelphia, a city in Turkey. Now, it's not called that anymore. It's a Lhasa here today. I think I pronounced that correctly, but... Here's what you need to know. The name Philadelphia means city of brotherly love, but the people of that city were not kind to the Christians. The Christians, this tiny little Christian community was under a great deal of pressure. And Jesus writes to give them five promises, five promises that should enable any believer to say, I will not give up. I can make it, I can last. I'm here to the end. And the first promise is an open door. So I love how verse eight, Jesus says, I know you have but little power. He's essentially saying, I know how weak you are. I know you can't do this on your own. It's like when he says in John 15, five, if anyone abides in me, he'll bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. See, people who love you can speak that kind of truth to you. When I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I remember my mom more than once saying to me, hey, I know that girl's cute, but she's trouble. Stay away from her. I didn't want to hear that but she was right. Now that I'm an adult, I have a wife who sometimes says to me, you know, Jeff, that, that shirt has seen better days. It's time to, to stop wearing that. You need to throw that away. No, don't, don't donate it to Goodwill. Throw it straight into the trash. And, and this is the third time I've, I've told that story. And every time I see wives in the congregation look at their husbands and go, yeah. So, so yeah, people who love you can tell you the truth. Jesus is telling you and me, apart from me, you can do Nothing. But with me, you can do whatever I command you to do. The verdict, every one of these letters has a verdict. For me, the verdict to the church in Philadelphia is, I set before you an open door that no one can shut. What is an open door? Paul uses this term in his letters, and he's always using it uh, to mean an opportunity for the gospel. So I think what Jesus is saying is, there are people in your city who are hungry for the good news. You don't realize it because you're surrounded by so much paganism and unbelief and so many people who think your beliefs are ridiculous and you think you're a minority and, and in many ways you are, on your own you are, but with me you're a majority because there are people in your city that can't wait to hear the good news. I've opened a door for you to change the lives of many people. All you have to do is walk through it. That's exciting news. And I know that's a message for people who lived 2,000 years ago, but you know what? We have this in common with the people of Philadelphia. We also are weak. We also can do nothing to change our community, to change much less our country. And yeah, all the the petitions we might fill out or, or, or picket signs we might carry or get out the vote rallies that we might get involved in, none of those will have any impact apart from the gospel itself. And the gospel is what changes lives. And Jesus says, every day I give you divine appointments, opportunities to change the life of somebody in some small way, to let them see the love of God in a tangible way. See, when I was uh, half my age, my current age and younger, so my teens through my early 20s stopped doing math, um, I, I used to think the whole key to life was to discover God's purpose for you and then do it. And I still believe that God has a purpose for every human who's alive today and every human who will ever live. I believe that and I can defend that scripturally. The difference is I no longer think that you should just sit around praying for God to reveal his will before you act. Now I think that God reveals his will not in some big flash of insight, but instead it's more like breadcrumbs that he leaves behind for you to follow. And those breadcrumbs are opportunities. So when you see someone in your school campus, your workplace, your neighborhood, that's struggling, and you say somebody ought to help that person, that someone is you. Now, when, when there's a relationship you have with someone and you think I should, I should invest more in that relationship because I think that person needs me, that's an opportunity, that's an open door. And when your church says we need volunteers, that's an open door. And when there's a need in your community and you say, well, you know, I, I feel strongly about that, that's an open door. And every time you choose to break out of your comfort zone and set aside your own priorities and your own comfort level, and and just go and do the will of God, you are following the breadcrumbs of God, and you keep walking through those open doors. And one of the one of these days, you're going to look around and realize, "Oh, now I know why I'm here. Look at how God has used me all along the way. Now I understand. God opens doors for us. Are you ready to walk through them?" Second thing he promises is vindication. Vindication is, well, let me just explain it from this letter. Jesus, you may have noticed, he referred to a synagogue of Satan. That's the second time in these letters he's used that term. The first time was to the church in Smyrna. And he says, they say they're Jews, but they're not. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus, remember, was a Jew himself a proud and, and, and loving Jewish man. He loved his people. What he's saying is this group of people who gather in my name, who call themselves Jews, they're not really my people anymore because they've rejected me. You, you small little group of Jews and Gentiles gathering in someone's home, who are treated like dirt by the synagogue down the street because they're a protected minority in the Roman Empire and you're not. You're just seen as a bunch of weirdos and some kind of a strange cult. You're my people and they're going to have to bow before you someday. What is he talking about? He's talking about a coming day of judgment. Judgment is real. And where does that impact you and me? It impacts us in this way. Probably everybody in this room has some grievance, some moment where someone mistreated them. You've been falsely accused of wrong. You've been gossiped about. You've been ridiculed just for trying to do the Lord's will. You've been, you've been cheated. You've been betrayed. You've, you, you've been treated terribly. And you know what the Bible says about that stuff. You know what the Bible says to do in those cases. Love your enemies. Pray for those who hate you. Romans 12, Paul says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't you wish it said overcome evil by punching it in the throat? But it doesn't. It says, while they're doing evil to you, you do good to them. Those are the weapons we fight with, with prayer and with love and with kindness. And guys, I gotta be honest. On a human level, that sounds like really cruel advice. That's like me as a dad if I had a little boy and he was getting bullied every day at school saying, well, just suck it up. You know, go to school. You'll be all right. And that's exactly what it would be except that he goes on to say these words in Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. Don't you love the way that's phrased? Leave room for the wrath of God. It's almost like God is saying, Okay, if you want to take your own wrath, if you want to gossip about them, if you want to punch them in the throat, if you want to get your own vengeance, okay, you go ahead. But if you want to get out of the way and let me take it, I can get justice a whole lot better than you can. Leave room for the wrath of God because, he says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. You see, you need to know this. And if you've never, ever been through real pain at the hands of another human, then you don't understand how important this is. But people who've been in concentration camps, people who've been enslaved, people who've, who've been the victim of sexual assault, people who've been the victim of abuse, they know that you need to know there's justice. You can't just go on through life. You can forgive and you should. You can love, but you still need to know there's gonna be justice. And that's what Jesus is promising here. No one goes scot-free. You love them, you pray for them, and one of two things happens. Either either they pay before God, or they repent and Jesus pays, just like he did for you. But either way, you win. That's vindication. Number three, he promises salvation. Salvation. So verse 10 says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, some of you are super into theology and biblical studies, and that's great. I love Bible nerds. Some of you are not. So just bear with me for a moment if you're not. There is a school of thought that's called dispensationalism. Some of you know this. Some of you don't know the name, but you were raised in a church where you were taught dispensationalism when it comes to the book of Revelation. I'm telling you this because dispensationalists believe that in verse 10, when it says, I'm gonna spare you the trial that is coming on humanity, that means that Christians are free from the great tribulation. That means we'll be raptured before there's any kind of tribulation on earth. I don't wanna get into whether that's gonna happen or not. That's not my purpose, okay? You've got my series on Revelation you can look at if you want to. If you need links, I'll send them to you. What I wanna say is, I don't think that's what that's talking about in verse 10. Because the people of Philadelphia were real people that lived 2,000 years ago. And the whole purpose of the book of Revelation, it is absolutely apparent to me, was to encourage people like them who were under a lot of pressure to stay the course and not give up. Now let me ask you something. If you were trying to encourage a group of people not to give up on their faith, would you say, "Hey, don't worry about it. Thousands of years after you're dead and gone, a bunch of people are going to be glad for this promise." No. You'd promise them something that would help them in the current time. You'd promise them something that was relevant to their own lives. What Jesus, I believe, is saying to the people of Philadelphia and he's saying to us as well is no matter how bad things get, remember when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the king of the universe asks you to give an accounting of your life, you don't need to be afraid if you're in Jesus. In fact, you can rejoice because you get an A plus. not because you did the work, because he did the work. See, there's this, there's this great song, and, I, and I, know, I know this is not a familiar song to many of you, but I wish it were. Nathan leads it sometimes, so hopefully you'll learn it. it. It goes like this. This is the verse that I love. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon me. Because he died, we're set free. Because he died, we've got nothing to fear. I have this, or I used to have this recurring nightmare. It hasn't happened now for over 10 years, and I'm thankful for it. But for years, in my 20s and 30s and later, I, I would have this dream where I was back in school And I realized it was the last day of the semester and I realized there was this class I'd signed up for. It was always a math class. Um, And and I hadn't gone to any of the classes and I hadn't done any of the assignments and I hadn't taken any of the tests. And in the dream, one of two things was happening. Either I was on my way to the professor's office because I was gonna beg him to just give me a passing grade or I was on my way to the final and I was just praying that somehow I'd be able to guess the right answers and pass the test. And I would always wake up in a cold sweat. Now, I found out later that this is a common nightmare, that lots of people have it. In fact, raise your hand if you've ever had that nightmare or something similar. Yeah, that's at least a third of the people in this room. Now, here's what, now I'm no, no psychologist, but here's why I think we have that dream. I think it's because we have things that we haven't done that we know we should have. There are things left undone, and that anxiety manifests itself in a dream about having a test to take or a a class you didn't finish. And here's the good news, okay? Yes, you will stand before Jesus someday. King of the universe, high and lifted up, exalted. He won't be the gentle lamb. He's going to be the king, right? The coming conqueror. And you'll have every reason to be terrified, but you won't be. You know why? Because he's the one who took your test for you. There'll be nothing left undone. He took your F so you could have his A+. He took your pain and your shame and your death so that you could be free, so you could be the child of God. Salvation, that's the good news. And then there's a third promise, and that is, I'm sorry, a fourth promise, and that is his return. In verse 11, he says, I am coming soon. And you might say, well, Jeff, that's been 2,000 years ago. What does he mean by soon? Well, the word soon in Greek can also mean suddenly. And in this context, I think that's what Jesus is saying. And the reason I think that is because whenever Jesus talked directly about his return in Matthew 24 and in other parts of the, of the Gospels, he always said two things over and over again. He said, first of all, he said, uh, I am coming on a day you don't know, you don't expect. And the other thing he said was, no one knows the day or the hour. So the word suddenly fits. Jesus is coming suddenly. We're gonna wake up and he'll be there. We're going to turn around, he'll be there. When we least expect it, he'll be there. Listen, I don't know what your spiritual status is. Some of you I can take a pretty good guess because I know you pretty well. But many of you I don't. I don't want to take advantage. I don't want to I want to take for granted the fact that oh because you're a member of this church or because you go come to church semi-regularly that your status is just fine with God. So I need to say this to you. If you are saying in your heart of hearts, yeah, I've read the Bible, I know that uh, you know, there's gonna be mountains crumbling and, and the moon turning to blood and, and, and fire and brimstone falling from heaven and when that, that stuff starts to go down, then I'll get right with God and I'll make sure my soul is okay. It'll be too late by then. Jesus is coming when you least expect it. There won't be any warnings. There won't be any signs. You're gonna wake up and he'll be there. And you know what happens on that day? On that day, that's the end of the age of grace. That's when the door, the wide open door to salvation closes. And it's too late. Now, 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9 says this. This is is Peter writing. He says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The reason Jesus has waited this long is because he wants every human being to have an opportunity to be saved. But once that time is over, and I don't know when that is, it could be tomorrow, it could be today. Once that time is over, it's done. Your opportunities are done. The door is shut And you cannot get in. And so I want to say to you, the only time that you have is now. In like five minutes or less, I'm going to be standing right there and Nathan and the band are going to be leading us in a song called Give Me Jesus. And I want you at that moment to walk forward and just say, I need to know for sure that my soul is his and that I am saved. Don't delay, don't wait. Jeff, are you trying to scare me? Yeah, you bet you're but I am. I'm trying to scare you because you need salvation. My mother-in-law would be very angry at me for saying that word. Sorry. Um, It also marks the end of the age of evil. And this is the good news about his return. Because when Christ returns, that means the devil is once and for all done. That means all evil is gone. That means there is no more evil at all. See, the good news is, no matter how bad things get in this world, we know how the story ends. The story always ends the same way. It ends with Jesus on the throne. It ends with us dwelling in resurrected bodies on a perfect earth. Sometimes uh, when my team is on TV, actually every time my team is on TV, I hit record on my DVR. And if they lose, I hit delete. And if they win, I keep it because there will come a time in the middle of July or whatever when I'm, I'm getting football fever and I want to watch my team. And so I'll watch that game because I'm a degenerate and I'll sit and I'll watch. And, and the interesting, interesting thing is the second time I watch is always different emotionally for me. The first time there's a lot of anxiety. Okay, if you ever go with me to one of my games, um, you know I'd love it. But I won't be good company at all because I'll just be into it. But when my team is playing, and I know the final score, it doesn't matter that the referees make a bad call once in a while. It doesn't matter that our team fumbles or throws an interception or 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 makes a bad call or or busts a coverage. It's fine because I know the final score, y'all. When I look at American Christians today, one of the things I see is this rampant anxiety. And I don't mean like clinical anxiety, like you need to go to the doctor and, and get on medication. That's the case for a lot of us. But I mean, I mean the anxiety that you shouldn't have. Like what's gonna happen if this guy gets elected? What's gonna happen if, if those people get their way? What's gonna happen if, if, if this, if that? If, oh no, this won't be, what will we do? And I wanna say, don't you know the final score? don't you know who wins? Yeah, there's gonna be some bad times along the way, and that doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing, but it does mean we shouldn't be afraid. It does mean we shouldn't buy into the rhetoric that says, if you don't do this now, we're all gonna to go to hell. It doesn't work that way. We know who wins. We know the final score. And then finally, number five, we are his forever. You want encouragement? Know this. We all know, and we do, we know what rejection feels like. Some of you have been through it. I I have a friend, we served on a church staff together uh, when we were in our 20s, really good guy. I trust him with my life. Uh, You know, nothing in, I mean, I would have taken him on my staff in a heartbeat once I was a pastor and highly talented. And yet, not once but twice, he had a pastor who came to him at two different churches and said, you know, you're doing a fine job. Uh, I've got nothing against you. I just want somebody else to do your job. So I'm gonna fire you today and he's gonna take your place. And that hurts. That hurts so bad my friend and his wife after the second time they were just done. They're not only done with ministry, they aren't even in church today, which breaks my heart. I pray for them, but... That's how bad rejection hurts. And some of you know that rejection. You've experienced it in the workplace. Even worse, some of you have experienced it in your relationships. You've had a child who said, I'm never gonna speak to you again. You've had someone you loved that you thought was the one who broke off your relationship. You've been through a divorce that wasn't your idea. You know what that rejection feels like, and it hurts. And what Jesus says The promise he gives to each of us in verse 12 is the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, let me tell you what's significant about that. The temple didn't exist when Jesus quoted those words. In fact, it had been destroyed 30 years before by the Roman general Titus and has never been rebuilt. You go to Jerusalem today, there's no temple on the Temple Mount. What is Jesus talking about? a pillar in the temple of my God. Is he making an empty promise? No. You know what the temple is? The temple was the place where you met with God. Jesus is saying, you don't need a physical temple anymore. You're in the presence of God now. Through my blood, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are in his presence, and you're not just a visitor there. You're a pillar. You won't be moved. No matter what happens, you're there. Jesus, in, in John 10, 28, promised it this way. He said, no one will snatch them, meaning us, From my hand. The devil can rage and roar all he wants. He can't take away your salvation. And you can mess up, and you will mess up. And I will mess up. And God will never reject you. And and let me tell you God will give you people through the course of your life who will love you well. Nobody will ever love you like that. Because every human being, even the best person who loves you, has his or her limits. God has no limits in his love for you, you are his forever. We you're his. So let me just finish with this. Joseph in the Bible is one of my favorite stories. In the book of Genesis, uh, Joseph was uh, the son of Jacob. His brothers sold him into slavery. I mean, is that a stab in the back or what? And in slavery, after a few years, he was falsely accused of a crime by his master's wife. He's thrown in jail. It gets from bad to worse. Then in jail, he helps a guy know that he's going to get out, and then he says, when you get out, help me get out. The guy gets out of jail just like Joseph promised, but forgets about Joseph. Joseph languishes in jail for two more years through an extraordinary series of events that I don't have time to tell you, Joseph not only gets sprung from jail, he becomes the right-hand man of the most powerful man on earth, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. With his newfound power and with the wisdom of God, he saves the lives of millions of people from starvation, including his own brothers who once betrayed him. And then late in life, when Joseph's dad, Jacob, dies, and the brothers come to him and they say, hey, I know you've just been holding off killing us until dad was dead because you didn't want to break his heart. Well, now dad's dead, so would you please, please not kill us? And Joseph says, I can't can't believe you don't know that I forgave you a long time ago. But I did. You got nothing to fear from me. And here's the, one I, here's the reason I'm telling you that. Genesis 50, 20, Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to save many lives. What I love about that is, what Joseph is saying is, the worst thing that someone can do to you, whatever that worst thing is, the worst thing the enemy of all creation can do to the people of God, God takes it and says, okay, I'll turn that into something good. Do you know how frustrating it has to be to be Satan? I mean, the worst thing you do, God says, "Hmm, let me see how I can make that into something beautiful. Doesn't mean nothing bad ever happens to the people of God. Bad things happen to us all the time. It means nothing ever happens so bad that it ruins the plan of God. In fact, God takes it and makes it part of his plan. And we know this because on the worst day in the history of this miserable planet, when, when we lined up against the Son of God and, and betrayed Him and, and, and denounced Him and nailed Him to a cross and the forces of evil poured out all their hatred upon Him and He went through hell on earth, on that day when it looked like evil had won because the Son of God was dead, three days later, He wasn't. And then eventually His disciples started reading the scriptures and hearing from the Holy Spirit and they understood, hey, on that day when we thought it was the worst day, it was actually the best day because that's the day our victory was won. When the devil did the worst thing he could possibly do, the Lord took it and made it into the best thing that ever happened because that was our salvation because he died so we would never have to. Because He went to hell so we would never have to. He faced judgment so we don't have to. He was rejected so we never will be. God is able to take what looks like defeat and turn it into victory. So don't worry about what you hear on the news or what, what your senses tell you. In fact, in fact, know that whatever happens, God is gonna make it something beautiful. If you trust in him, don't give up. In fact, look for those open doors that he has set before us. Let's walk through them this week.